Hello and welcome to 90% Hits, a podcast about the number one singles from Australia throughout the 90s. I'm Danny Yao and with me as usual is Tim Coyle. Wiggity whack, yo. <laughs> Casey Atkins. I was trying to think of a funny one for this week, but I just, I just couldn't. I ran out of time. Hi. And down the line from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. Well, I was going to say wiggity, wiggity, whack, but it's been done already. So I'm just going to have to say hola, amigos. <laughs> hola to you too, Tim Byron. We are going to talk about another five songs that charted at number one in Australia in the 90s. We will be covering the period of the, eight, oh, the 27th of June, 1992, <laughs> till, oh, it actually takes us quite, Far into the end of 1992, uh, the 26th of September. So we only have one 92 show left after this, and we're back into Choose Your Own Adventure. But five songs to talk about tonight. And, hey, let's just get into it. This song was number one for three weeks on the 27th of June, and it's Crisscross with Gel. Crisscross with Jump, and we're recording this a uh, little over over a month after uh, Chris Kelly of the band passed away. So obviously, you know that's a that's a tragedy, and we all feel for him and his family and and everyone around him. Tim Byron, what do you think about this song? Well, the thing I remember about Jump is I remember a, a, like a school formal kind of thing or like a school dance in year six in 1993 um, when I remember a lot of jumping going on. Like I remember, <laughs> you know, I think they played this song and I think they played Jump Around by House of Pain. I think they also played Jump by The Movement. And so there were lots of like 11-year-old kids. <laughs> no, there was no Van Halen. Nah. It was just... It, <laughs> That, that was a different kind of jumping. This was just like a bunch of kids <laughs> jumping up and down in the school like hall, a, basically. Yeah, this is sort of like an outbreak of St. Vitus dance. In Pretty much, yeah. So just like there were just like all these kids jumping up and down because like to me, like it, it seems that jumping up and down is something that anybody can do. You don't have to even have the basic idea of knowing how to dance. You can just jump up and down. It's like moshing. And so I wonder how many of the kids, like in 1993, who were jumping up and down to these songs would eventually go on and mosh to Spider Bait or something, or Pearl Jam. So that's my memory of the song more than anything else, like just this kind of, you know, everyone jumping up and down. Um, as to the song, I don't think I really heard it much at the time. Like, I think maybe I remember hearing it at that school formal and thinking, oh, I don't really know this too well, because I don't think they would have played it that much on radio because it was a bit too rappy or something. But yeah, it's um it's a brilliantly constructed song from the point of view of being a catchy rap song. It does everything it's meant to do. It's kind of cute that the kids are there, though it's kind of sort of cringy as well at times. So yeah, it's pretty good. But the thing, it's it's good to jump to when you're 11. That's my memory of the song. Casey Atkins, what about you? Yeah, I guess similar memories in a way. I certainly remember it from school formals. Um, but I remember quite liking it. Kind of like I liked You Can't Touch This or Ice Ice Baby or um, Informer, which is, I, yeah, I, I liked it on that level. It was, it was cool. Um, really interesting though, this week it, it came on and I was expecting to just go, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I think it's brilliant. I actually think it's really, really good. I think it's incredibly put together. I think their rapping is, is great. Um, the playoff between the two of them. I don't really get a lot of cringeworthy stuff from it. I was, I guess I was expecting to, but I 
didn't really see it. I just, I think it was really, really good and I enjoyed listening to it. I listened to it a lot. I think it was really nicely produced and I think it does a, a great job. Tim Kyle? Yeah, I think in 1992, I was getting the point to the point where there was a degree of hip hop fatigue setting mm. in. Uh, it was just so ubiquitous at the time that it was just kind of, uh, you know, it's another rap song. I've heard so many of these for the past two years and, you know, I was, I was still pretty much hung up on Hammer at the time. So, you know, <laughs> crisscross one Hammer. It's this kind was of, well after yeah, Hammer time. Yeah, Come on. <laughs> it was, but it just kind of passed me by. And as I said, hip-hop and rap fatigue was setting in. So I wasn't just paying that much attention to it. And like Casey, this week I expected it to be a bit, uh, you know, so, something that we would come here and all dump on. But I really didn't mind it at all. I thought it was really good. It's a bit bratty, and that's probably the one aspect of it that uh, doesn't sit so well with me. But everything else, I, I love the rhythm of it. Some of the, just the piano playing that little figure during the verses. is it great? Simple and it's subtle and it's really good. And, yeah, this is just a really unexpectedly good song um, on the playlist this week. So, yeah. Uh, I guess I agree with you guys. And yeah, I, I love the song today, listening to it, uh, having not listened to it, God, in well over 20 years. Yeah, probably 20 yeah. years, but definitely <laughs> mm. a um, and yeah, it just sounded really fresh and really amazing. Back in the day, I loved it as well. I remember trying to learn the words to this. I can still do the entire rap to warm it up. Uh, and it is, yeah, it's just uh, a great. But the thing that is cringeworthy about this band was that I watched a film clip and that <laughs> stupid backwards dressing thing. And I was such a pop culture guy at the moment. I remember I used to watch Entertainment Tonight and all those sort of shows all the time. And I remember this article, this like, you know, TV article where someone interviewed the band and they interviewed this guy with them who's like maybe a journalist talking about hip hop. And he's talking about how fresh Chris Cross are and and you listen to music, great, but part of it is that, you know, they're dressing backwards and they're making a statement about how people dress and stuff like that. And that's stuck in my head that this stupid journalist tried to contextualise this stupid thing. It was such a mistake for their career and they must have not been able to live that down ever. Like, do we all remember the... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Was the thing that... That you had to have some kind of gimmick and this was well, theirs. I was, I was going to say that. It's kind of going back to the thing of there being a degree of hip-hop and rap fatigue. Everything seemed gimmicky within hip-hop and rap at that time mm. uh, simply because there was this such a degree of saturation of this kind of music. You needed something to stand out and yeah. you've just got artists reaching for a lot of these gimmicky things and therefore you've kind of got crisscross putting clothes on backwards and stuff like that. It's just whatever you could do to just have a hook, people could hang something on. Yeah. And listening to it this week, it was great. It was just watching the film clip. I didn't watch this film clip, actually. I didn't watch this film clip. There was another very important film clip for this week that will (laughs) (laughs) wait. (laughs) So Chris (laughs) Chris Cross had a number of hits. Of this album, and I think it's the, really the only album they had that really, really charted and made sort of any dent in the popular culture. So, do we remember all these songs? The three were Jump, Warm It Up. No. Warm It Up, yeah. Yeah, Warm Was It Up, Chris, I'm about to. Warm It Up, Chris, that's what I was born to do. Nope. Was the Mr. the Bus? Miss the Bus! Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, so what do you say about that? So those three songs, and I listened to all three again, and I had the same attitude to jump, really, in that they kind of stand up as sort of well-produced hip-hop pop Mm -hmm. with really decent rapping and really cool production, quite full, and and it was well put together. They really knew what they were doing, but I actually think Warm It Up is slightly better than Jump, but I guess Jump was the first single. Jump's the only one I seem to remember. Uh, I don't really have any memory of Warm It Up or Miss the Bus. Speaking of um, stuff from the last couple of weeks, did you notice the uh, the couple of digs at another bad creation in this song? No. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> no, where? Uh, the, well, they actually, they used the sample at the start, didn't they? And then- yeah, yeah. And he said something about another bad little fad or something like that. 
at the start. Oh. And there's a reference to um Yeah. So so they're um so they it's like a diss track to the the only other like you know prepubescent rap group out there. Who <laughs> admittedly were terrible. Danny's Danny doesn't seem to think so. I think he's very upset now. Um, it's just weird. When you're a band and you're that young, I just think you're frozen in time. Like I can't look at Taylor Hansen without thinking of Mbop. No yeah, matter how yeah. talented so, so few can, years. Yeah, so few can make that transition. I mean, Michael Jackson did it to a degree, but we've discussed how difficult it was for him to really break out of that, oh, Michael, that cute little kid <laughs> kind of thing. And, yeah, the guys from Criss Cross, I don't think, ever got past it, that they were these these kids and no one could really no. uh, stomach them as uh, as adults. I still feel that way about Silverchair. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think um I think the thing that like that I'd probably want to say before we moved on was I think crisscross like in sort of ninety two ninety three there there was this real divide that was starting to happen in rap music like you had this kind of pop rap kind of stuff like you know the real kind of novelty rap kind of stuff like this and like Informer and then there was the gangster rap going in the other direction um where that where instead of doing all the kind of like the big hooks and the silliness of of an MC Hammer. It was going to be about. It was going to be real, and it was going to be about the streets and all that kind of stuff. And like, and so it was a weird point in hip hop's history, I think, because um, they weren't. No one had any idea what they were meant to be doing in ninety two, ninety three. Like the the height of the um, novelty for it had died down a little bit, but it hadn't become the, you know, the, the omnipresent kind of puff daddy kind of thing that it would, would that it would become in a couple of years. So I think crisscross are kind of in the middle of that divide, and it's a weird place for them to be. And you can see why they never quite made the jump to becoming something else because they were the stuck jump. in this time. Get it? Made the jump. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very uh, good. You might you as well. To, are you trying to suggest that crisscross didn't sing about real issues? Because I missed the bus <laughs> exactly. all the time. Exactly. Nothing's <laughs> <laughs> more real than missing the bus. And I'll be honest, for years of missing that bus, I would like any bus anywhere in the world, I would think of that song. <laughs> so and also, that. I guess it's in the past, you've used microwaves and ovens, so you'll be warming it up. <laughs> okay, before we show how white we are, let's uh, move on to our second song of tonight. This song was number one for one week in 1992, and this is Vanessa Williams with Save the Best for Last. So that was Safe the Best for Last by Vanessa Williams. Casey, how do you feel about this song? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, something. Um, uh, you with us? You with us? Do you need to smell salts? There we go. Yeah, Give my smelling salts back. Um, yeah. Wow. I don't. I just couldn't even be bothered talking about it. It's just what the uh, yeah. It's just, a, you know what, you know what I have to say? I hated it then and I hate it now. Yeah, it's done. The sun never goes around the fucking moon, okay? It just doesn't. I don't care about your shitty metaphor. It just doesn't, okay? <laughs> like, you know, look, it's, it's, it's just a boring, soppy song that um, a whole bunch of people bought into for a week. There you have it. I don't know. <laughs> 
just move on from me. There's no point. <laughs> uh, Tim Coyle, what about you? Yeah, I, I found it particularly uninspiring at the time, and yeah, I find it even more uninspiring now. I I didn't know who Vanessa Williams was in 1992, and didn't know quite why my parents were giggling when her song came onto Rage, and. Yeah, I, I mean, I understood that she was an unusually attractive woman already in kind of the realm of pop music videos where they are ubiquitous. But, yeah, didn't know the story, didn't know that this was kind of the big redemption thing and yeah, just well, passed me by. For, for those who are listening who don't know, a couple of years earlier or was it even It was 1984 when the controversy um, was at a tie. I don't know the story either. Uh, well, Vanessa Williams was crowned... Miss America. Um, the first black. Yes, the first African-American oh, Miss Obama America. Off. And <laughs> like little Miss Springfield had to abdicate her crown due to some very, very, very racy photos. Now I'm thinking that Obama is the Vanessa Williams of the <laughs> <laughs> a mawkish pop song in five years' time. Oh, we can only hope. <laughs> yeah, so that's the controversy that Tim is talking about. But yeah. Um, you watched Rage with your parents? My parents. <laughs> I can't imagine my parents are watching Rage. They would just have been bored. Our TV was in our dining room, which was part of our kitchen. So it was on on a Saturday morning and they'd be around. So yeah, they'd, they'd see these things. Chance to get a glimpse of Vanessa Williams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tim Byron, what about you? <laughs> Pass. This is another one I don't have much sort of memory of. Like, it's, I wasn't paying much attention to pop music this time. So I don't recall hating this at the time. I don't recall particularly enjoying it. I just kind of recall it being there and being around and kind of. <sighs> And yeah, listening to it now, <laughs> like, it's just got that, the really kind of M.O.R. keyboard sounds at this point where there's a, like a really sort of oh. tinkly kind of piano with that pad I sound know. behind it. And it it's sounds just, like uh, a MIDI track. Yeah, it does. And it probably was. Like, the bass is like a synth bass and the drums <laughs> are a drum machine kind of thing. And yeah, it's just kind of... Uh. And, and so, as a song, I listen to it. And like, out of these songs listening to it this week, it's the one that's been stuck in my bloody head. <laughs> it's the one that yeah. like save the best for that is and, and I'm like oh so um yeah this one I mean I listen to it and I can see that it's a, a really well crafted pop song in the kind of way that all these things are really well crafted pop songs. I, I I would bet you that the producers offered it to Whitney Houston first and she turned it down. I um, think that is the case. Yeah, it was knocked back by quite a few singers before it found its way to Vanessa Williams, who said, "I can't believe any no one has." Perform this song, so I will. Yep, and um, and she got the number one out of it, and is probably laughing all the way to the bank. But yeah, I- I'm predicting right now that Danny loves this song. What do you think, Danny? <laughs> I don't love this song, but I, I tell you what, I, I tell you what, I do love. I love the Wikipedia description of the song, which I've decided that I'm going to read. The song is a ballad about a young female admirer of a single man who stands by and watches as the object of her desire goes through years of dating before he finally and unexpectedly decides to consummate a relationship with the singer. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> consummate. Yes. Now, that, that's a rock and roll word. <laughs> I also like the fact that the word dating is a link in Wikipedia, which leads to... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, yeah. I want to rock song. and roll all night. And consummate every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Look, this song, there is a part of me that likes some of it. Like, I like the melody. It's it's a very nice written little ballad. It is treated terribly. Mm. Although, maybe not by Vanessa Williams, because the other thing I thought, she could actually kind of sing. And, you know, not every Miss America can sing. And she could kind of sing. And then she continued a fairly half-decent singing career. And she turned out to be quite a star and, and not a bad actress and whatever. So, you know, good on her. But, yeah, this song, it's 
fine. Like, I, I wouldn't really go and listen to it in any way, but I kind of appreciate that it's it builds up in its own little way and it's, someone was probably very happy with the melody. The lyric is terrible, though, that opening couplet. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, what is it? Sometimes the, sometimes the snow f- comes down, down in June, sometimes the sun goes round the moon, and which it, it fucking doesn't ever. <laughs> and then it doesn't actually have anything to do with the song. Like, it doesn't right. have with the theme of... It's not like, say, metaphors oh. on things happening at the very end of a cycle. It's just things that, it's, it's kind of basically shit happens. Yeah, strange things happen and the strange thing is this couple have ended up together and it, it's kind and of... a song got released. Yeah, well, it's interesting <laughs> because, <laughs> because this song is essentially the female version of To Be With You, which we covered last week. <laughs> yes. You save, you save the best to last. Interesting. And the thing is, it's not quite as obnoxious as what they're saying on To Be With You. Uh, nothing really. But she does think be. she is the best. Yeah, I, I mean, but that's actually saving grace. She's actually kind of saying, "Well, you, you've saved the best to last." But it's still, yeah, it's. I'm waiting on that line. Yeah, <laughs> finish with all these other hoes. <laughs> so, if you, I think, if you are wondering why this song got, or how this song got to number one, I think you just need to watch the film clip because she looks beautiful in this film clip. Like, she looks stunning. She's kind of walking around this field and, and it cuts to, like, an orchestra behind her and some stuff. I don't remember. Like, so I have a memory of, of, of her in the snow in this video clip, but I don't know if I okay, can well, that up in my head. No, you didn't, because what they did is they they reshot the film clip for uh, basically yes, a Christmas special, which uh-huh. they would wheel out a few years subsequently uh-huh. over the Christmas period. It became a Christmas song for some bizarre reason, um, okay. largely because everyone's so tired and happy to be on holidays at Christmas. That it's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to listen, listen to this song that I don't have to make any effort <laughs> with regard to It's unoffensive for the entire family. So that's offensive to me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to our third song tonight. This song was number one for an amazing three weeks uh, in July of 1992. This is Richard Marks and Hazard. Looking at hazard when I was just seven Even then the folks in town said the prejudice dies That boy's not by Richard Marks, number one in Australia of uh, 1992. Tim Coyle, we haven't started with you yet tonight. How do you feel about this song? I loved this song in 1992 and I mean, it was just so creepy and spooky and I loved that it was this short story and it was ambiguous and the film clip made it even more ambiguous and... Yeah, really loved it at the time. This week, now, it's dated. The sound is dated terribly. But when I was listening to it this week, look, I'm I'm no songwriter, I'm no producer, but my first thought is, you know what, you could dig into this and you could get a great song out of this. I think there is so much there that you can work with. I'm not, I'm not saying you could make it into Springsteen's Highway Patrolman or anything like that, but you can get a really good story song out of this. Tim Byron, what about you? Yeah, I um, totally agree with Tim Coyle. The thing I was thinking listening to this was, yeah, the production on it is just awful. There's that kind of really annoying nylon string guitar kind of solo sounding thing. Where it's just like, it's like, uh, it sounds awful. And um, I listened to it and I was like, Nick Cave should cover this. And if he did, it would be better than anything he's done yep. in the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, at, at the time, this is another song that I've got only vaguely memories of at the time, but it must have just been on the radio in the background and I liked it enough. And yeah, it's, it's a great song. Where did this come from? But the thing I, I think about this is like Richard Marx is the guy who did Right Here Waiting, which is such a like it's such a shameless kind of a tugger of the heartstrings. It's sort of cringy and embarrassing. He's got the mullet in the video clip, and then there's this, which is just like oh, boy, have you seen a the murder ballad. Clip? <laughs> Casey, what do you think about the song? Um, so this one, I think I liked it, but it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> like you were saying, it was kind of spooky and creepy. I was really like frightened. By it. I think I remember I just the black and white and the stuff that was going on in that video clip and the people pointing and laughing at him and all that. I'm sure we'll talk about the clip in detail. Um, but yeah, I remember liking it but being frightened by it. My feelings about it now are actually pretty similar to, to what we're hearing. Like that backing track is it's karaoke, right? It, that's what it's good for. That guitar solo is it's kind of stock for that style, but it's all right. But the, the song behind it is, is really good. I love the fact that the first chorus has different lyrics to the, the rest of the choruses, yet the rhyming scheme is the same. Um, you know, it says, we used to watch the sun go down, where in the sort of chorus that he actually repeats a few times, it's left her safe and sound. Yeah. I just think that's beautiful. It's, it's very clever in the way he just, the repetition of the river as, yeah. as an image. It's, it's, it's almost like, say, a child ballad in so far as using that, um, that motif and just the river becomes such an important part of the song and it's it's engrossing the way it does that. So that and then and that's what struck me when when listening to it that there is a really you know just the same as you guys there's a great song in there badly treated but um yeah Danny mm. I fucking love Richard Marx. Yeah <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of his albums I spend a lot of time watching his videos on YouTube I read a lot of interviews with him like it's almost an accident that he became a star. Like, you put him in the boat of people like, well, I'm going to say names that no one knows because that's the thing, like someone like David Bearwald or, or Bill Bottrell who kind of co-wrote Black or White and all these other those studio guys, LA studio guys kind of do a bit of co-writing, do a bit of backing vocals to thing because he was a backing singer for Madonna. He kind of produces a bit. It's just a really talented all-round music guy that for a couple of years managed to, like, you know, got a mullet and sort of got the charts. Yeah. So, yeah, he kind of is a very interesting person, very interesting artist. And this song is my introduction to that. That was the first time I actually heard going, oh, this guy's actually doing something very interesting. And it's an amazing song. I kind of don't mind the production. I guess I'm, I listen to the song a lot and I'm used to it, except that guitar solo, that fucking Gypsy King's fucking <laughs> guitar. Just is, uh, just... Uh, and it's just so around at that time. Yeah. But then there's yeah. just a beautiful perversion of this song just being played in, like, I don't know, David Jones back in the day or something, probably in restaurants because yeah. of that fucking Gypsy Kings thing. And people just thinking, oh, it's a lovely ballad, whatever, play after, save the best for last by Vanessa Williams. <laughs> yeah. It's a freaking song about murder. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, it's a pretty harmless song and there's obviously a lot of darker songs in the history of music, but... It's fantastic. And the way in that really, really short amount of time he just paints that image, and maybe it's blurred in by the film clip, but all those images, it's very cinematic, really paints the picture, and it's just a very, very well-written song. And also just happening upon, hey, there's a town in Nebraska called Hazard, and it's like, look, this is a tiny town. It has a population at last census of 70 people. Seriously? Yeah. Wikipedia have revised this down to 69 to probably take into account that Mary, Mary is no died. longer there. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, just, just it, you can think of the songwriting thing of this, looking at this map, and it's like, just right in the middle there. Huh. Hazard. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I remember it wasn't until the video, still seeing the video clip that I realised that Hazard was a town, like because mm. Hazard was a, a word that I knew, but yeah, I wasn't yes. associated mm. with being the name of a town. Mm. Yeah, but so, what was the? I guess he must have filmed the film clip there as well, right? Because oh, they have the city limit signs. I don't yeah. know if it's it was actually shot in in Hazard, Nebraska. I think they kind of made him chief of the 
what must have been the biggest town carnival you could <laughs> ever imagine like, um, in 1993. Um, Sunday night. Yeah, after names. the publicity <laughs> managed to, to get them. The, um, the, the thing with the video clip, and it's the same with the song as well, um, the, the video clips kind of serves to hold the, the ambiguity around, like, who did it. So, well, the, like, the film yeah. clip's even more ambiguous than the song. I yeah. think the song is... I mean, it's not conclusive what happens, but it's basically to think that whoever the the speaking voice is did it. You you are entirely relating on relying on an unreliable narrator. Whereas the film clip is giving us, well, he could have done it, yeah. or it could have been the sheriff. Or, yeah. and, and look, there are so many interpretations around this, and it's something that. If it was made in the internet era, it would have been great and basically has been responsible for maybe my favourite internet comment ever, which is on the songmeanings.com website, which is ah. usually brilliant for this kind of thing. But, okay. So from poster H53CM1, so a very short person and maybe Peter Dinklage is a Richard Marx fan, but um, <laughs> goes like this, all caps and screaming. It seems like a lot of listeners are missing the bigger picture here. Why would the narrator, otherwise known as Richard Marx, write a song about killing someone if he didn't? He's a musician, a person whose life is always in the spotlight. If he really killed someone, we would have found that, would have found that out by now. It makes more sense, logically speaking, that he wanted to commit suicide to be with her because he did love her. If you really think about the bigger picture, it just doesn't make sense that he killed her. Sometimes people see read too much between the lines. Why not go to the horse's mouth, so to speak, and find out from Richard Marks himself what the meaning of the song about is before making such an emphatic claim that the narrator is writing about a murder. That's just foolish. The very thought that would even indirectly implicate Richard Marks as having that malicious intent. And it just goes on. I, like mean, that. What I, think, I think we can all agree that Richard Marks himself didn't actually kill Well, I, 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 tried, I, I tried going to the horse's mouth, but for some reason, Richard Marks' management really didn't want to address an email yeah, no asking whether he'd actually killed someone. <laughs> so, you know, all I got in response was cease and desist, yeah. posting all these Photoshop <laughs> photos of yourself <laughs> as though you're Richard Mark's buddy. Bring 90%. There's, a, there's an, an article which was going around last year um, written by a guy who writes for the, a website called The Morning News about how he wrote a blog for, like, some Chicago thing. Yeah, just as an aside, wrote, like, you know, but they're not that shameless. You know, Richard Marks, that's shameless. And Richard Marks emailed him and said, why the fuck are you calling me shameless? You know, who, you don't know me. You don't know who I am. And um, eventually they met up and, like, had this sort of funny conversation and stuff. And they're sort of, like, joking around and friends and stuff now. But he had this, obviously, Richard Marks has a Google alert or something like that. And so, like, he's going to find out about this podcast. And so, hi, Richard Marks. We think you're great sometimes. <laughs> Hey, well, I think you're great, Richard. And uh, if you ever want to be on this podcast, come on, man. We just compared you to Springsteen. Moving on from the sublime to the ridiculous. This next song was number one for six weeks in 1992. And this is Jose Carreras and Sarah Brightman with Amigos Paris Siempre. Amigos para siempre 
Okay, that was Amigos Para Siempre uh, by, well, sung by Jose Carreras and Sarah Brightman. For those who do not know the story of this song, and I applaud your life that you're living, <laughs> but also uh, this was the song that was part of the 1992 Olympics set in Barcelona. Awesome. So this was the official song of, uh, well, this is one of the two official songs from that Olympics. The other one is the completely forgotten song, Barcelona, sung by Freddie Mercury. So, Tim Byron, why don't we start with you? With Migas Paris Siempre, what does it mean to you? It means you'll always be my friend, Dan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was too easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was like set up, but yeah. um Yeah. I mean, like, I remember at the, at the time, I remember thinking at the time, that this was the kind of song that you had to have as an Olympic theme song. Like, you couldn't have an interesting song as an Olympic theme song. It had to be, like, a song that was meant to, like, appeal to everyone. And so, you know, it's got... um, What's what's his name who does the singing? He's not Placido Domingo or... um, And he's not... Jose Carreras. Yeah, the other guy. The other guy. Yeah, he's the other guy. Of the three tenors. Yeah, so, um, yeah, anyway, it's got, it's got that kind of thing for the old people, and it's got Sarah Brightman, who is one of the sort of Andrew Lloyd Webbery kind of singer girls, I guess. Well, she was his wife for a time, was she not? She poor was. Girl. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. yeah, poor woman. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, and he wrote this song. He didn't write the lyrics, but he wrote the music behind it, and it kind of sounds like it. It's got that kind of musical-y kind of thing. And so I remember thinking at the time that this was – it's the kind of song that ha- that the, an Olympics has to have an, as a theme song. Like, it has to be something sort of boring like this. And, um, I mean, I think at this point I already knew what Amigos meant because I'd been watching, like, Looney Tunes and Speedy Gonzalez says that. So I, I knew that that meant friends. And so I could connect the dots and realise that Amigos para siempre, that it's a para siempre means that for life. So I, I learned a little bit of Spanish through this song, so it, it's partially well, worthwhile to listen to it once. It. I got something mm. out of it. I listen to it today, I listen to the sound of this song, and it reminds me of, like, Rufus Wainwright or The Divine Comedy, except that Rufus Wainwright and The Divine Comedy are doing it with a fair bit of kind of irony and kind of sarcasm that the sound is meant to kind of be funny when they do it. And there's no humour here. It's Andrew Lloyd Webber. No humour. So, um, yeah, listen to this now. It's, it's funny. It's not meant to be funny, but I listen to it and I laugh. And I find it semi-amusing to listen to, so I didn't actually mind it so much because I thought it was kind of funny. Tim Coyle. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think like Tim Byron at the time, it taught me a bit of Spanish, and I was like, yeah, that's that's cool. For now, a little bit of context. I think Danny spoke a couple of weeks ago that he, is, he uh, really loves musicals. Um, look, I really like opera. I wouldn't go as far to say as I'm an aficionado, but I listen to a bit pretty regularly and really enjoy it and yeah it's been something as an adult I've really enjoyed educating myself about and yeah I could see what they're trying to do here and so far as they're using opera to legitimize the song and this is what Andrew Lloyd Webber does he he thinks he is operatic but he's not operatic he's just dreadful and this is really dreadful poor old Carreras is totally out of his element and he just sounds confused more than anything. And, yeah, look, they're two very capable singers and they just don't really have a grasp of what they're doing there. The backing track, I mean, when it starts, it's like I'm on a cruise ship somewhere with a whole bunch of pensioners dancing around me. It's, it sounds like a bad band on a cruise ship. And uh, uh, what on earth was happening for six weeks well, I know, the Olympics are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's the thing, just, right? Yeah. They only go for two weeks. <laughs> what happened for the other four weeks? Yeah, how do you explain that? Casey Atkins, what about you? <sighs> oh, look, it, it, this is another one that, yeah, I don't think you're going to get a lot of, you know, pass. differing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe pass. But what, what I did want to bring up with this... What I did want to bring up is um, you remember we've talked a lot about Hey Hey Saturday on the show, mm. and um, did any of you guys see or do any of you guys remember at one point on Hey Hey Saturday? I imagine during the six weeks there was this moment on Red Faces. Is this ringing a bell with anyone? Yes, uh, right. Some of Danny's yeah. And the two people that performed this song as this like special late entry into Red Faces were. 
Effie mm-hmm. from Acropolis Now and Norman Gunston. And Norman Gunston. <laughs> and I do remember this, and, yeah. Yeah. So we'll find the clip if we can. I watched it today. It's up there. Oh, okay, the great. So we'll share it on the blog. That will be on the blog. And that and, <laughs> and it redeems so, it. No, no. That's <laughs> just as awful. Like it's just it, it, it's all bad and I don't even know. I don't know. It's just As long as they took the piss out of it though. They took the piss out of it, but also you're looking at that kind of comedy that is just so stale and stuck in its time and embarrassing to watch now yeah, as true. well. So, you know. Anyway, look, it's it's just some shitty boring song and it was another one of those ones like the Vanessa Williams song that, that really tested my have to listen to it all the way through <laughs> once rule. But I did, but only once. Danny? This song pretty much undoes everything good the Olympics ever did. <laughs> it is like, so I do love musicals and, and onto what you were saying, Tim Byron, I think a lot of musical has a lot of fun and humour about it. Let's face it, it's filled by gay men. They have fun, <laughs> right? And the thing about Andrew Lloyd Webber is that he is a humorless prick. Like he just has nothing. Like he and this is one of his greatest humorless works. And he's such a douchebag. And he's just like, is everything I hate about musicals is in that guy. And everything, and he's so famous that it shadows everything else. Like mm. everyone just thinks of cats and whatever. Cats, what a stupid musical. And of the song, of the wider song, apart from Andrew Lloyd Webber's awful music on it, uh, yeah, it's just a bit of a train wreck. But here's the thing for me it set up an expectation for me every Olympics of going, oh, what's this year's song? And what is this year's song? What has been an Olympic song since then? And it's made me kind of think, this song didn't need to happen. Like, they did <laughs> songs before or after. They could have just left it alone. You know, bloody Andrew Lloyd Webber. So, yeah, it's not one of my favourite songs. It's done by people who I find to be very boring and I don't like what they do. And it's, yeah, it bores me to tears. I do appreciate the musicality and whatever and the performances, but yeah, it just nah. Well, it, but even then, it's just it's it's trying to use this operatic thing in a very casual context, and it's also look the whole thing with opera is going there and the very visceral thing of being in the room, same room as the orchestra. Mm. That, that's very important, and the power of the voices. But the other thing you go is you go to the opera, you want the most oversized emotions and okay friends for life fine but then some guy in a twirly mustache comes in shoves you both in a shipping container and throws you into the ocean that's an opera (laughs) (laughs) not this friends for life thing and that's the thing andrew lloyd Webber just does not get and it's the humorless thing he tries to prissy opera up and he thinks he's being operatic and he's not and the thing is he has that thing with that a lot of popularizers like Alain de Baton do, that when you call them out on how shit they are, they just lose it. And, well, you're being elitist and stuff. But, yes, I'm being elitist because I like good things and not shit. <laughs> I really hope Andrew Lloyd Webber doesn't have a Google alert. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Andrew Lloyd Webber story that I have, Joe, my wife, and I have uh, a term. We heard this story about Andrew Lloyd Webber because he and Sarah Brown have got a couple of kids. And um, when they were young, he would, like, work and he'd be in his study and um, his children would be brought to him for, like, half an hour a day and that was how he parented, like, that was how he fathered, that his children would be brought to him and he would, like, speak to them for half an hour and then they would be taken away again. Bring me (laughs) child number one. Well, that's exactly... And and we just had these... uh, Images of the, the children just going like, you know, hello, father. Yeah, this is very, kind of very Dickensian kind yeah, of awful yeah, childhood. <laughs> so we have this thing, if either of us is feeling like under the weather, like sick or um, uh, you know, hungover or something like that, and we want to see Jarvis but not actually, that's our son, for those of you playing at home, um, but not sort of actually have to do anything. It's like, oh, can you just Andrew Lloyd Webber Jarvis to me for <laughs> half an hour or something? Like, we just have this thing. Can you just, uh, I'll just Andrew Lloyd Webber him to you and then I'll take him away. And then, you know. Yeah. Well, that's a very different way of how I use those words. So I was just imagining like it was like doing a shit. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm just going to do an Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. Having a shit is too enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> This is uh, another number one from 1992, That I, I was thinking, listening to this, was that um, what's what's this, what's this sort of rule in show business that if your surname is Brown and you're an R and B star, do you have to beat up women? W- why is this the case? <laughs> because there's James, there's James Brown, there's Chris Brown, and there's Bobby Brown, and um, liking this is basically equivalent to liking the latest um, Chris Brown single. But I have to confess that. I like this much more than I like Save the Best for Last or Amigos Paris Sea Empire. And so listening to this makes me realize how much of an awful person I am. <laughs> <laughs> We've all known it for a long time. No, I'm just Tim Kyle, what about you? Yeah, so like every little step from 1988, which is kind of my first exposure to Bobby Brown, is a terrific oh, song yeah, and I, I love that, that song and was still very much at the forefront of my mind when this came along. And I hated this when it came out because it was not every little step. And, yeah, it was kind of, it was quite in-your-face and aggressive and I found it a bit obnoxious. Now, listening to it this week, I thought I was going to detest this with every fibre of my being, but I couldn't. That melody of the chorus is fantastic. And also listening to this after Amigos Paris. <laughs> this has such a full sound to yeah. it. And it sounds so modern. Yeah. It's, this could be released now. And, yeah, that's the thing. I liked it. And Bobby Brown is such a lavishly gifted singer and dancer. He's just so talented and yet has no charisma. And that's part of the problem with this song, and I think we'll talk about it a little further, but how can one man be so talented and so uncharismatic? <laughs> Casey Atkins. Yeah, from the time it was just another song that was just there, um, I wasn't really liking this kind of music and um, as much as some of the rap songs like Criss Cross I was still getting into, but this R&B thing passed me by. Exactly like you, though, Tim Coyle, I listened to it this week just thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to be another one of those kind of shitty songs that I don't like. And, wow, it's actually really good. It's like that scene in High Fidelity when they're listening to the demo tape from those skate kids and they're going, like, it's really fucking good. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the thing. I can't can't live in this reality now that I've had to confront that Bobby Brown was such a talented dude. (laughs) So... Yeah, I just listen to it and it's just so striking in every way. There is this energy to it that's just infectious. His voice is incredible. The hooks are great. I just don't like the fact that I liked it so much. And it really grabbed me. And it was one of those things that I just thought that it sounded like 
a shitload of work went into it. And a lot of people mm. worked really hard on making it sound that good. And he performs really well and all of the vocalists perform really well and the production performed really well. And, and it just, there was a lot of effort in it and it kind of deserved to be a hit. Mm. Or as much as I don't know if it's a good term to use, hit, uh, well, it's Bobby <laughs> Brown, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. too soon. <laughs> um, I agree with everyone. That, yeah, I just, I actually really love the song at the time, and it still sounds pretty good, and it's the reason that I liked Bobby Brown at the time. But every little step and all that sort of stuff is great as well. This song was definitely a favourite of mine, of his, back in the day. So, yeah, it all came rushing back listening to it today. I just I was listening to it and I just found myself grooving along. It's just got such a good beat. That verse is so great. It's pretty misogynist. The actual tone of what he's trying to convey, it's really bad. <laughs> the film clip makes it worse. I didn't watch it. It's very obvious that he's humping around because um, he's that's what he's doing well, in the film clip. But even in real life, I mean, Bobby Brown was well known as an Olympian philanderer. <laughs> Maybe this should have been. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think, in a funny way, like him being that kind of guy and probably being the kind of guy who doesn't realize that he's that kind of guy is what makes this song sort of work because he's the, he really is the kind of douchebag who really would try and pull this stuff and try and say these things to Whitney Houston when he came home mm-hmm. with his dick still wet. <laughs> Like, he, he would be, like, saying these kind of stuff with, like, trying to be as honest-looking as he possibly could. And totally, like, you know, the, the way to really sell that is to not actually believe it yourself, to actually believe you are the good guy. Well, yeah, it's the George Costanza thing. It's not a lie if you believe it. And, yeah, I think Bobby Brown possibly bought into that quite heavily. Well, yeah. okay, so it's obvious that Bobby Brown right now, and maybe for the last whatever number of years, is a massive douchebag. And it's obvious that... At one point, maybe very, very close to birth, he wasn't like that uh, before he could speak and walk. How far down the cycle do you reckon he was here? Do you reckon he was still like the bright, young, innocent pop star or do you reckon that he was hiding the darkness? He, he had only just into his relationship with Whitney Houston at this point. He'd married her a month before this came out in Australia. Okay, yeah. And oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, first, marriage, that marriage was on good standing. Yeah, his, his <laughs> first, first marriage had fallen apart a year before this, I think. So, yeah, it, I mean, we didn't know then what we know now about that particular relationship. For me at the time, as I said, at the forefront of my mind was every little step that he was kind of this vibrant, young singer who could dance extremely well and who had an incredible voice and was uh, I went back and watched the every every little step clip this week and he's a really obnoxious douchebag in that <laughs> as well which is totally at, at, at odds with the song which is such a perky likable song and that's kind of what I'm talking about the complete lack of charisma there is just so striking that yeah he's almost got that Chris Brown thing of just something so defensive and hostile about him and how he interacts with his own audience that's bizarre mm-hmm. and yeah it's, it's just so striking to watch it he he fell out of the chart pretty soon after this as well this is sort of his last big hit in this country by the looks of things but this was uh number one but then good enough came to 39 and he never charted again in this in this country. Yeah. You can tell that it just must have eaten at him that a song that we're about to uh, talk about next <laughs> week um, by his wife was the big, big hit that made this look like a tiny hit because that song was just so massive and huge. And you can just tell the kind of douchebag he is. It really would have eaten at him. But, like, you know, he had a big hit and then she had this massive hit. And, like, you know, she would come home through the door at night, you know, with her number one. He would just sit there going, should it be mine? You know, he just seems like that kind of dude. It's also it was it would compound <laughs> it would compound things because the thing with Bobby Brown is also he's not a very handsome man either and he married a very beautiful woman and I think a lot of people were probably doing the whole is she really going out with him thing just yeah would have eaten away at him, him? as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, um, so yeah it, it, I remember the songs and I remember this one fine but it didn't like it until this week. 
We're all terrible people. I know. Um, but I mean, and, and it's one of those things that when um, all of that stuff came to light, and when I heard about that, you know, that Bobby Brown was beating up Whitney Houston, I was I just kind of wrote him off at that point. I was like, oh, he's he's that guy. Is he okay? Well, fuck him. And and that was kind of it in my mind. I love every little step. I still do. Just that you know, if you kind of walking by the Charles River one night in Boston and a well-dressed man with a slight whiff of sulphur about him offers you a deal to have the most sublime singing voice and dance moves you could ever <laughs> imagine, don't take that deal because, you know, the fine print says even your mother and your own children, when they hear your name, will just go, oh, that jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, Bobby Brown's daughter is also called Bobby Brown. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Much about the thing about Bobby Brown is that JD and I were trying to figure out one um, one night what was the first sort of dance pop kind of song that had like a rap in the middle as a middle eight, and, and so we were trying to sit around and trying to figure out who it was, and we eventually asked like the internet. <laughs> what, what did the internet say? <laughs> that the internet um, said that yeah, Bobby Brown was actually one of the first people to have like the rap as a middle eight kind of thing that you know is going to be omnipresent in songs we're going to come up to reasonably soon in our podcast. So I guess like from that point of view, he's a um, you know a, an originator, um, you know, an innovator kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, that's not something that I would be proud of. It's like that scene in The Simpsons where. Homer meets the guy who goes, you know what two guys in the lake are talking to each other? I invented that. It's part of the face. Just like Bobby Brown would have done. Yeah, he's tender a douche. I kind of liked every little step. I liked my prerogative. The Britney version is fantastic. And I really like On Your Own, the song from Ghostbusters 2. But yeah, it's just he's just obviously turned to a douche, and he's always definitely also rants for me as well. We should wrap that up, and I just want to say apologies to Jackson Brown for what Tim Byron suggested. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't an R and B singer. He was he was like a folky. Makes it True. all good. It was quite soulful. Um, <laughs> you have two a very white man definition. Of two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Look, okay, well, as usual, we're going to go around the table and see what everyone's favourite song is from the five that we went through tonight. And just to recap, we spoke about Jump by Criss Cross, Save the Best for Last by Vanessa Williams, Hazard by Richard Marks, Amigos Para Siempre by Jose Carreras and Sarah Brightman, and Humpin' Around by Bobby Brown. Casey Atkins, can you pick a favourite from that? Jump by Criss Cross gets my vote. Tim Coyle. Has it. Tim Byron. This has been a pretty poor week. It really has been. Save the best for last. Bloody hell. Um, for me, it's going to be Hazard. <laughs> I, I have reservations about Hazard and I have reservations about Jump, but it's Hazard for me because it's just got that great murder ballad kind of thing. And it would like it would so easily be number one if it was Nick Cave covering it like about 10 years ago. But, you know, the production on it's the karaoke thing, but still it's such a bad week that, yeah, Hazard is the one. Um. Oh, hasn't yeah. By a long time, I have no reservations about that song. It's a fantastic song. So, so I, I would only say jump. Like I, I would argue that hasn't, like we said, is probably a better song. But jump, I got the most joy out of this week. Yeah, jump's the better production. Yeah. Mm, much better. It it sounds complete as it is. Whereas yeah. the the thing with hazard for me is that. You can see the potential in it, mm, but yeah. as it stands at the moment, just maybe not where you would like it to be. You guys don't care about Mary at all. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, maybe we did it. <laughs> 90% hits. Um, and so that wraps up another episode of 90% Hits. Uh, Danny is incapacitated <laughs> and can't uh, tell us about the end of it. But Casey, tell us about um, how I you can find I out more. I by the river. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find us by the river. Um, you can also find us on <laughs> Twitter at 90% hits. You can find us on Tumblr and Tumblr is kind of becoming the first place to go actually. So 
um, 90percenthits.tumblr.com. You can send us an email at uh, 90hits at gmail.com and also on Facebook, of course, a percent in all instances spelled out in words. And as usual, uh, leave a comment uh, on iTunes and please rate us on iTunes as well. That really helps us uh, be visible on that platform. So, yeah, that wraps it up for another week. Thank you for listening. And next week we'll be back with another five songs. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I swear I left the pie. The one. Vinderella cut it up one time. We are a rock revolving around the golden sun. How much of this one do you reckon? Do you reckon we're actually gonna play? I reckon like six seconds before we play that. <laughs> 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 Amigos so, para siempre. Shut up. Amigos para siempre. Jenny's looking at me really weird now. That's right, I'm just I'm just happy that we've got the Easter eggs now. So. Let's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's just put that in instead of. <laughs> <laughs>